Consciously creating the life of our dreams. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, back by popular demand, we are diving deep with TJ Woodward. You remember TJ from episode four, where we talked about conscious recovery. If you haven't listened to that episode, you need to do so. But today, TJ is here to discuss his most recently published book, Conscious Creation. This is a five-step process of creating the life of your dreams, and I think that this is a much more powerful and effective process than your typical manifestation or live attraction practice. I think that this process really embodies what I believe to be adult child recovery, so this is a damn good book, and this is a damn good interview. So a few days ago, I received a message from a listener saying that she was in the midst of her adult child bottom, that she was in a lot of pain. Now, I've received a bunch of these messages, and my response is always the same. I'm so sorry that you were in pain, but at the same time, I'm really excited for you because of what lies ahead. Learning that we're an adult child and learning that recovery is possible is such a huge blessing because of what is possible, of what can happen, the way in which our lives can transform. This is an archaeological journey. But instead of dinosaur bones, we are in search for our most authentic selves. Through this process, we dig, we dig, we dig, we resolve the pain of the past and eventually unearth our highest and best versions of ourselves and live accordingly. We get to live a life of fulfillment, of joy, of meaning as our authentic selves. Now, I've shared in prior episodes about how part of hitting my adult child bottom was this realization of how much I was selling myself short in life. Now, during the course of the nine years leading up to hitting that bottom, the only thing I had been concerned about was finding a guy and getting married. That truly was like my sole purpose in life. Nothing else mattered. And not once had I truly thought about what a fulfilling life would look like outside of a relationship. It wasn't even a consideration to me. I think that's also probably why my world would shatter so much when a relationship ended, in addition to the uh, unresolved complex drama that I was dealing with. But I viewed a relationship as the sole ticket to happiness. And so having this realization that a fulfilling life involves much, much more than just a romantic relationship. You know, I embarked on this healing journey that wasn't just about healing the pain of the past. It was about finding my greater purpose or what I like to say, my apex of personal fulfillment and my contribution to the world. What are my unique gifts, my unique strengths? How do I be the best version of myself? I've shared some about this journey that ultimately led me to creating this podcast about a bunch of synchronicities and divinely inspired moments. Um, but I want to share a part of the story that I haven't shared with y'all. So it is April of 2017. So this is in between Brian number one and Brian number two. And I go on this meditation retreat. And while I'm there, I have a life path reading from one of the intuitives. And so I remember after the reading, I was not too pumped about what she was telling me that my life would entail or, you know, what my life path was. Uh, what she told me, a lot of it didn't make any sense. And a lot of the things that she was saying didn't sound too exciting to me, such as that this was the first of many lifetimes where I would be spiritually based, that I'd had many prior lifetimes where I had had great success and a lot of achievement but that this lifetime will be the first of many lifetimes to come where I would be spiritually based. Now, 
myself at this point in time, I took this to mean lame, lame life, boring life, living in an ashram, going on silent meditation retreats. It was not really what I was looking to hear. (laughs) So fast forward two years later, I've hit my bottom. Uh, I've started to do this healing work. I'm probably about a year into my adult child journey. I am digging. I'm digging. I am starting to unearth my authentic self. And I decide to listen to the reading. I had a recording of it. And a lot of what she was saying that made no sense to me at that point in time made a lot more sense, specifically related to communication. She was saying that, you know, part of my purpose is related in my gift of communication. And so a lot more of it made sense. I remember getting goosebumps when I listened to it again, and it was kind of like this aha moment for me. Well, I decided to listen to it again a few months ago. If you guys ever get readings from intuitives, I highly recommend that you get the recordings, and I highly recommend that you listen to them again over time because I'm pretty damn sure that you will hear things, things will make sense that maybe didn't at the time. So I listened to it again a few months ago, and I about shit my pants at what she was saying. And so now I'm going to play just a little clip of this reading. So again, this was in 2017. This podcast, not a blip on the radar, not even a consideration. So your life lesson is the same as your outer number, and that's really a communicator. Mm -hmm. You have this amazing gift of communication, and you're a master communicator, meaning that you can gather information and translate that to others in a way that they can actually receive it and find it useful. They can understand and put it to use in their life, whereas somebody else couldn't really give that communication to them. Mm -hmm. It's not just communicating information, but in a way that can relate. Be received. Right, Uh the way that that will will be helpful. Your vocation and your avocation come together under the 70, meaning you're really looking for that one thing or that way of walking in your life that allows you to earn your living doing the things that bring you personal fulfillment, right? Not just earn money. You're looking for the intangibles this time around. In the past, you gathered your position and your money were about material achievements, education and wealth and whatever was there, the power of that. But you already have that within you. You know how to do that. And you will achieve all those things. But the missing component is the spirituals, meaning that the only thing that's going to fulfill you is the intangibles. That What happens when you see somebody transform, when you see somebody that's been disempowered suddenly learning how to stand on their own two feet, when you can communicate in a way that influences a person's life Mm -hmm. and makes their life better, there's your fulfillment, Mm -hmm. you see. And you can earn your living in the things that fulfill you, but they must be spiritually and creatively based. Okay. Okay? It will be in the field of communication. Now, another thing that she said to me was that I don't see, I don't realize that I have these unique gifts, but that one day I will. And she was right. And that is solely because of this adult child healing resolving the pain of the past, reprogramming the faulty programming of my childhood. I had to dig, dig, dig away to find my authentic self, to discover my unique gifts, to figure out my greater purpose. Now, I'm still digging, y'all. I mean, Judy said in that that my advocation and my vocation need to be the same. That has not happened yet. But guess what? You can help me get there by making a donation, by joining the Patreon, by giving me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, by telling everyone and their moms about this podcast. Yes, I will take any opportunity for a shameless plug. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome back. You love him. You want to hear more of him. You keep sending me messages to have him back on. Author, spiritual guru, TJ Woodward. Hi. 
Hi, I'm so excited to be back. And it warms my heart to hear that people want more. You know, I can always talk like you, so we're going to have fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do have to say, so my friend Mariah, she is like a, a huge super fan of yours. So say hi, Mariah, because she'll shit her pants. Hi, Mariah. She just launched a coaching practice. So I think she wants to start a podcast and the thought of talking to you is like on her dream list. So Oh, awesome. Well, I'll say yes already, Mariah. Reach out. To me. <laughs> uh, so conscious creation. When did you drop it? It came out. The official launch date was nine, nine. So it's, it's new. It's exciting. I'm, I'm so grateful. It was about a, a three-year process and partially because I, I was just being really conscious of when it wanted to publish. You were consciously creating it. I was consciously creating it. And then COVID happened. So I hit the pause for a while and, and just, you know, worked behind the scenes on it. Nice. Well, I thought we could start initially with just the end goal, which is the awakened life. So how do you define that? Well, we come into this world in my experience already awake, right? And so I think sometimes when we talk about spirituality or we're part of certain spiritual communities, there is an intention or a focus on getting somewhere, like moving toward this state, like becoming enlightened. And so what I want to start with is it's already who and what we are underneath all the layers that we've put on top of it. So an awakened life to me is profoundly simple. It's waking up from the illusion of all the stories, the limitations, uh, the trauma that we've had so that we can reconnect with our true nature and then live in a very, very different way. Yeah. I was listening to one of your podcasts. Um, I can't, I think it was maybe conscious being, um, but you were talking about destination addiction. And so I was hoping that you could uh, chat about that. Yeah. I mean, I would say, especially in American culture, I mean, I'm sure it's in other cultures as well. Now that I say that I'm thinking, oh, there's some cultures that have it even maybe more than us, yeah. but this idea that I'll be happy once I get somewhere or something. And we get indoctrinated with that from such an early age. You know, we ask little kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? Like somehow that I remember being like six years old and seven years old and hearing that question. And it seemed so bizarre to me. Right. And then we get into school and it's like, where am I, what's going to happen when I'm in high school? And then which college am I going to go to? And then finding the perfect partner. Some of us have that program and which degree are we going to get? And then we start building our, you know, financial wealth. And I mean, it's just, this list goes on and on. And I think there's this idea that once we attain a certain um, level of success in the outer world, that we're going to be happy. And I think it's an addiction of thinking, once I get that, I will be okay. And so we're really looking at how we flip that script completely and say, what if I'm perfectly okay the way it is right now? And then I'm not holding on so tightly to an outcome and I can become actually a much better creator of my own life that way. Well, what if, what if the way you are right now is how do you counter that with like being a bum and just not doing anything? <laughs> Where does that fall into it? Well, I think, I think there are some people obviously who have that, right? So for me, I mean, I kind of, I tend to be like kind of a plus, like my, my learning is to slow down, take a deep breath, listen to my inner wisdom more, and then not always be right in action, but to be in the con contemplation more. And I hear you, there are some people that that's not the issue, right? And so for some people, it is, what do you really desire? Like, what do you want to offer the world? What do you want to receive? Again, it's still creating a space to listen to the inner wisdom. But then we get into the question of, well, how do I now move into the action stage? So actually, in conscious creation, I talk about all of that. Yes, you um, do. Yes, I do. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. Um, but first, I wanted to start off with, so this is in the introduction of the book, and I thought that this was just so fascinating. Um, and this was the the four levels of consciousness. So was this something that you came up with yourself, or does this come from somewhere? It's a fascinating story. The first time I ever spoke at a spiritual center, I believe it was 2005 or six. My first talk was called Beyond Metaphysics, and it was about how we move through these different levels of consciousness. And they came to me in meditation, and I gave them uh, M titles for these four different levels so the mind can remember. And at the end of that talk, someone came up to me and said, oh my gosh, have you ever heard Michael Beckwith speak? He has something really similar. And it's really 
fascinating because of, of course, now we've collaborated, you know, he's a friend of mine. He wrote the foreword to the book and he has almost the identical four levels, but I hadn't ever heard him talk about it. Wow. Did it come to him in, in meditation as well? It did. As a matter of fact, uh, a friend of mine told me that she was with him when he came up with it during a class. It just came pouring through and he went to the whiteboard and started making notes as as he was receiving all this information. So that's the way consciousness works, right? We tap into something. He tapped into something I did as well. And we came up with this extremely similar framework. We have a slightly different way of talking about it, but it's essentially the same. Wow. Okay. So we start with level one, which is martyr consciousness. Things happen to me. Yeah. So most of the planet and most of my life, I'll I'll just own that. I lived in this level of consciousness. I think Michael Beckwith calls it victim consciousness, but it's the idea that the world is happening to me. And then my reality is created based on what's happening in the world. And this in this level of consciousness, there's a lot of focus on good and bad and right and wrong and us and them. We can see a lot of religion lives there. A lot of school systems live there. Certainly governments live there. And this is where we really have a lot of conflict and war because the idea of ownership lives very deeply in this. This is mine, not yours, or I am right and you are wrong. And boy, do we see that playing out in our culture right now. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. And so then next level, we have magical thinking consciousness. So I make things happen. Yeah. So we move from things happen to me to I make things happen. And the primary focus of this level of consciousness is the mind, right? We understand. And for me, it was so exciting when I started moving into this level because the idea that the world wasn't happening to me and I wasn't a victim of the world was so empowering. You mean I can actually create reality by changing my thinking, changing my perspective. And so um, this level takes us out of that victim mode and into looking at us as the creator, right? Oh my gosh, I can actually start to manifest. This is where we hear a lot about the law of attraction. Yeah, I was going to say the secret is kind of that level. Yeah, that's very much so where a lot of the secret lives for sure. And so what are the, what are the shortfalls though, of this level of consciousness? I think what happened for me in my life is that it was really fun and exciting. And I learned how to create my life and move out of victim, but it left me um, wanting more partially because it felt like an all about me stage. Now that may not be true for everyone. It was really true for me. It was like, oh, I need to manifest all the goodies, right? The house, the car, the hot boyfriend. I mean, all of that stuff was what I was manifesting with the vision board, but there was a place where this is where the destination addiction really comes in. I manifested all of it, but I was like, is this all there is? I'm not really contributing much to the world. It feels like I'm trying to take from the world. Nothing wrong with that, but there was definitely a longing for something more. And that's where I started to shift into what can I offer the world now and how can I actually find deeper purpose? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what, and also too, I guess what comes into play is if you were unable to, to manifest what it is that you're, you know, trying to manifest in the, what happens when we don't see it working? Does that typically, do we typically shift back into the martyr consciousness? Oh, a hundred percent. Or as the younger, as, as the kids say today, a thousand percent, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so easy if we're trying to manifest and we're in this, what I call magical thinking stage, and maybe we have some success and then it doesn't seem to be working. So it might be easy to default back and say, yeah, see, what's the point? So if I hear myself saying like, what's the use or am I ever going to break this pattern? Those kind of like sort of inner narratives are what allows me to see that I'm slipping back into martyr consciousness. And I want to also say it's really important um, to not be in judgment about these levels. Mm -hmm. All of us have the capability of living from all of them at any moment. So if I judge someone or myself for being in martyr, it actually keeps me stuck. So if I'm not manifesting what I want to manifest, I slip back into it. Then I'm like, oh, wait, I actually do have the power to create my life. 
I've been noticing in the past few of my episodes that I, I say, I keep saying a hundred percent. So I guess I'm like a, I'm behind the times. I need to start saying a thousand percent. I'm going to, I'm going to keep with a hundred. I'm going to keep with a (laughs) hundred. I mean, yeah, there's a hundred, right? I mean, that's really technically right. Yeah. That's plenty. That's plenty. (laughs) Okay. So now we're going to shift into metaphysical consciousness. Things happen through me or I let things happen. Yeah. So this, this, um, I, I I talk about the four rooms, physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. I talk about those a lot and that's a framework that really works for me. And I didn't realize it in the beginning, those four levels perfectly align with it. So as we move into this, you know, stage three, we would call it, we move into the emotional center. Uh, This is where we start to allow things to happen. We realize that we don't have to force or control things, that there's a natural rhythm to life. This Mm -hmm. is where we would start saying we surrender, right? I surrender my will. Uh, In some frameworks, we would call it like personal will and divine will. Um, We start to say, oh, I don't have to force or make things happen. I can start to allow things to happen. This is the level where the conversation might start um, being centered in the heart, Like if someone has an idea of a God or a higher power, they might say like, God lives within me or in my heart. Um, There's a love frequency, but it still tends to be in many ways outside of ourselves, right? So I also have this little interesting thing about the four rooms, if you will. Stage one is really outside of ourselves. Things are happening to me. Then we move inside and say, no, I make things happen with my mind. Then we move into metaphysical and it's like, oh, there is a divine energy all around me and I'm here to channel that. So the word channel comes up or, you know, people use astrology in this room or this stage. Uh, People use tarot cards or, or, you know, this is where we start to recognize there as a divine energy and that we want to connect with it. That would be a word you hear a lot at this stage, connect or connection. Yeah. So how does the magical thinking consciousness play into this role? Like, where does that still play in as far as manifestation, law of attraction? I would imagine there's still some of that. Yeah. I love your question because I do think it's important to recognize that there are aspects of each of these levels that are incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to abandon what worked at this magical thinking level, for example, because the mind is incredibly powerful. You know, it creates, it's something that we use as a tool to help us, uh, if you will, manifest things in the world. The issue is when we're primarily in only, or if we're living mostly in that stage, the mind begins to dominate, right? So at this third stage where we're living more in our heart, we use the mind as a tool. In other words, it's not the driver, it's in the passenger seat. Yeah. So now at the metaphysical consciousness, we're kind of bringing spirit in. For sure. This is the room of spirit. This is the room of paradox for me. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hard to talk about stage four or level four. Uh, Mystical consciousness, we recognize everything as one right? We move beyond the ideas of good and bad and right and wrong, um, good and evil. You know, these, these concepts, we aren't necessarily looking at our tribe anymore. We're recognizing, and if we're talking about a higher power, or we're recognizing we're one with it, right? Like Rumi uh, said, we're not a drop in the ocean. We're the entire ocean in a drop. That's mystical consciousness. I'm all of it. And there's a lot of compassion that comes from that because there's not a separate self. There's not a separate me. And so it becomes a little esoteric, but in practice, it's profound when I'm no longer viewing the world as separate from me, but I'm part of this divine movement that's always happening. It's just a completely different way of living. Yeah. Um, what, what are tools... I mean, we, t- we talk about these four levels. What are the actions that one takes to level up? Well, I think it always goes back to a couple of core practices. First and foremost, mindfulness, meditation, spending time in the silence, learning how to listen to the inner wisdom. At stage four or level four, we're purely aware of inner wisdom and inner knowing. We're tapped into that in a really profound way. 
The other tool that is really useful, and I, I like to say I'll, I'll give it in three steps. Step one, question. Step two, question. Step three, question. <laughs> right? Question my point of view. Question the way I perceive the world. Where did I get this idea? Where was this? Pro- where is this program from? What else is possible? So being in, like, for example, if I'm, if I slip back into martyr consciousness and I feel myself doing that, I can catch that and I can start to question, wow, where did I get this idea about myself? Where did I get this idea because of my gender, my race, my age, all the different programs we have, we can start to question them. Yes. And we will be getting into that more when we go to step two. Um, so now I want to get into the meat of the book. So conscious creation, five steps. I think that they're all very important, but especially steps one and two are so uh, relevant for the audience of this podcast. So step one is making peace with the past. And one thing that I love that you say, you say, in my experience, we cannot consciously create the life of our dreams until we make peace with the past. And so, (laughs) um, step two is overcoming core beliefs, which we'll get to, but I guess what I want to ask you is how does that differ from overcoming core beliefs? Like what, what does that mean to make peace with the past in your words? So I've given the five steps, an acronym to movie M O V I E, because uh, it's, it's a recognition that we're holding the projector and that we're viewing the world through this lens. And so a lot of people, uh, myself included, Uh, come to this idea, whether it's the secret or the law of attraction or new thought principles or recovery, all the different ways we find spiritual principle. And sometimes we're like, what can I create? What can I manifest? But if we don't clear away, so these first two steps, I call the clearing steps, um, you know, another metaphor is that of a painting. So if I'm, if I want to create the artwork or the portrait of my life, self-portrait of my life, uh, if I take an old painting and try to paint over it, that paint might seep through, right? So that's just a very simple way of saying, if I don't do work on clearing away the past, I'm carrying it with me everywhere. So I learned at one point very, very deeply, right? It wasn't a thought, it was an experience that it's not so much what happened, it's what I decided about what happened that creates what I call reality. So those are those first two steps and you're naming it. They're very interlinked, right? I mean, in a way they're separate, but in a way it's one process. It's like, what happened? What did I decide about myself in the world? What got buried in my unconscious and beginning to excavate that, bring it up into the conscious awareness so we can start to choose differently. But this first step is really about healing. It's about having compassion for myself, uh, the conditions of the world that created uh, my point of view. And is it possible for me to start unlearning that? Yeah. And one thing that I really like that you discussed is you talked about the role of forgiveness. Um, and in particular, there's one um, portion of the chapter that you it's titled, what about the seemingly unforgivable? Yeah. And so, um, you know, for me, I feel like I've reached a place of forgiveness with, um, with my parents, but I also too, I mean, I've never experienced some of like the really fucked up shit that other people, you know, I've never been, I was never sexually abused by a family member, you know, or anything like that. So it's easy. I feel like it's easier for me to say we have to get to a place of forgiveness, but at the same time, I don't have that experience of, of experiencing what seems so seemingly unforgivable. So could you touch upon that? Yes. The word forgiveness, I think, is really loaded. There are certain words that it's really hard for us in many ways to ask ourselves, what does this mean to me? Because there's so much cultural influence. I think forgiveness is one of them. God is one of them. Uh, Letting go is one of them. So forgiveness is often deeply, to me, in my experience, it's often very much a stage one, good and bad and right and wrong. You hurt me, but I'm going to find a place to forgive you. Mm-hmm. And I actually used to call the first step forgiveness. And of course, I didn't realize I was making an acronym. Certainly, Fuvi did not work very well compared <laughs> to know, the I'm movie. Kinda, I'm kind of into it. <laughs> there was an awareness that I had that um, regardless of what happens or what happened, I can make peace with that. And maybe I don't actually have to forgive in the way that we've conceptualized it. 
And, you know, just to be really uh, transparent in something that's happening in my life, it's possible that my mother is in the process of dying right now. She, we've had a couple of moments like this. She went into the hospital last night. It's, it's possible. She's starting to talk to people on the other side. And where does she live? She lives in Sacramento. And, and she, like, she started to see one of my dogs that has died and she's like, oh, Phoebe's been coming to visit. And uh, the reason I say this is, you know, there's, a, there's emotion around that and I've made peace with her, right? Um, we've had a very interesting relationship. Uh, I love her very, very deeply. And there was some stuff that, you know, happened in my childhood that caused a great deal of pain. And I want to be, I want to say something that I think is really important. Uh, in spiritual circles, we would call it spiritual bypassing. Uh, now they call it toxic posit positivity. And all that means is when, when someone is doing some of their deeper healing work and they say, oh, they did the best they could, it's all okay. We're bypassing the process of the healing. Making mm -hmm. peace with the past, it would be easy to do a bypass. Like, oh, whatever happened, happened. They were all doing the best they could. I want to move forward. But if there are wounds there, not from a place of blame, but from a place of like, wow, that did happen. This is what my experience was. This is what got buried deeply within me. And the reason I'm bringing that to the conversation is I have made peace with her. I have, you know, such love for her. And there was some pretty intense stuff that happened with her undiagnosed mental health issues and the rage and the depression and everything that came as part of that. Uh, and so that's a very long-winded way of saying there's a subtle but profound difference when we shift from forgiveness to making peace. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's reminded me of this conversation that I had with my dad um, several years ago where we were talking about me being in therapy and him just like essentially saying like, you just have to get over it, <laughs> you know, like right. you just get over it. And I'm like, eh, that's your problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, that's so interesting too. And what was coming to mind a lot is with this making peace with the past that it's not only, you know, clearing that away to, um, create the life of our dreams, but also the role that that plays in that, you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's, there's meat in that and there's gifts in that. And there's, um, like strengths that come from those difficult experiences that I think we then utilize in the life of our dreams, you know? Well, that's, yeah. that's exactly it. Right. So thank you for, thank you for bringing that point up. That was the point I was headed toward and then derailed the conversation. But <laughs> if it weren't, if it weren't for my mother, conscious recovery would never exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I wouldn't have had um, my life experiences that led me to this understanding of core false beliefs. Conscious creation wouldn't exist because I came to this by those early woundings, yep. but the key is to not bypass it. Right. And then also not to go into blame because blame is, it seems like a part of the process. I don't know if, if that's true for you. It was for me at first, my parents were perfect. I had the perfect childhood. They were, they were not at fault. And then like six months into my recovery, they were horrible and they were to blame for everything. And then, you know, another year later, I'm like, oh, they did the best they could, but not from the bypass place or the, as we say, toxic positivity, but from the place of, wow, that's genuinely true. And those experiences made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. And it's not either, or it's both. And I have that as a concept and I allow myself to feel and heal that, which needed to feel and heal. I think sometimes our mind thinks it's either this path or it's that path. You either just get over it and move on, or you get stuck in the past. And it really isn't those two extremes. It's a dance of all the different layers of this conversation of how we actually make peace with our past. Exactly. That's beautiful. Um, so step two is overcoming the core beliefs. And in this podcast that I was listening to you, uh, yours, you were talking about these questions as far as how to look at this. I guess my first question is, I remember I posted something on Instagram a few weeks back and it was, um, it was about this. So the first was like, identify, you know, what the core belief is and then, you know, where does this come from or whatever, but let's just start there. Like how I had, cause I had somebody ask me that, like, how do I even identify 
if there's a faulty belief there, I mean, for me, I guess it's, it's come through therapy, but I don't know, for some people, how do they even figure that out? How do they even figure out what the, the faulty belief is? Okay. So there are a couple of things I want to say about it. I also, I, I want to interject that I call them core false beliefs yeah. and believe it or not, the hashtag core false beliefs, I'm the only one using it oh, because most it. people call them core beliefs, right? Are we allowed to use that hashtag? Do you have ownership over it or can sure. we make it a movement? We're going to make, you hear oh my, that guys? Make let's it a movement. Start it. Let's all start hashtag core false beliefs. It's going viral, baby. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you feel so inclined, you can include me in your post yes, with it. Yes. DJ, um, DJ I, core false beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I want to bring into the conversation that there are lies that we've picked yes. up about ourselves yes. and yes. move out of the idea that they're good or bad, but ask the question, what gets created, right? What gets created when I believe I'm in unlovable, what gets created when I believe I'm broken. And to answer your question. The question of how we identify them is a big question because there are many people who are absolutely aware. Oh God, there's this one belief. I've been carrying it around forever. For other people, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So if, if you, you know, in conscious creation, one of the things I got clear on, which I didn't do in my first two books was I have these two characters, uh, uh, Sasha and Travis, and we walk through their experiences of how they use these five steps. And Sasha, she's in the archetype of like the type A, she's the lawyer. Mm-hmm. She has her shit together. Let's just put yeah. it that way. And she's looking really good on the outside. She's a perfect example of someone who probably wouldn't be in touch with their core false belief. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's just like, I must win at all costs. So as we explore throughout the book, we realize that these, this idea that I need to be perfect came from a very, very well-meaning family. She's one of those people like, I came from affluence. I came from this great family. I went to the right schools. I played classic violin, right? All of these things that looked really good. And then in our work together, she realizes that when she was a straight A student and she got a lot of praise for that. Mm. And if she came home with an A minus or a B, there was silence. And so in our work together, we realized, or she realized she was aware that even though that was really well-intentioned, she decided she was unworthy in those moments that she didn't get the A. And the thing about core false beliefs that's important is we don't change them in our mind because they aren't really created in our mind. Mm -hmm. They're usually created at a very early age before our minds are even developed. So we actually bury them really deeply. The way I frame it is you know, in our deep um, subconscious or unconscious, we make these core decisions and that becomes a frequency. Mm-hmm. And often the strategy is the opposite of the core false belief. So we, that's what I'm always curious about with someone. So like if the strategy is high achievement, hmm, I, I'm not going to think I know what the core false belief is, but I might start exploring with someone um, the opposite of that. And that's what came true for, for Sasha. And then we can start to heal that instead of only focusing on this idea of perfection and achievement. Um, you know, someone has anger issues. We send them to anger management classes and the message is don't be angry, but we want to look at what's underneath that strategy. What core false m- belief might be under there that this strategy is trying to manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this podcast, you know, the questions that you had was where does this belief originate, which I feel like you just touched upon. Um, you know, what do I believe or experience when I believe this thought, when does it appear? And then the last thing that you said was, what would it take to be free of this? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I do, I use these four questions and I use them in, in like conscious recovery groups. I use them in my, my practice with people. Um, and then in the workbooks, I think it probably those four questions show up in both conscious recovery and conscious creation. Where did it originate? What do I experience when I believe it? When does it arise or when does it get activated formally known as when does it get triggered? But this fourth question that you're asking is you could ask it in two different ways. What would it feel like to be free or what would it take to be free? And both of them are valid. So to start to explore first, what would it feel like if I, if I were to be free of this belief? A lot of times we've taken on this as an identity. I remember when I was doing my deep therapy work in my twenties, I 
I didn't know who I would be without the I'm not lovable frequency. That's why I was vibrating at it, right? So what would it be like to be free? And then what would it take to be free? And there's not a specific answer to that. We want someone, including myself or someone that's listening right now to ask themselves the question, what would it take for me to start moving beyond this? What would it take me for me to overcome the core false belief? Because I used to say, letting go of core false beliefs, And now it's really overcoming them. It's not really about getting rid of them, but learning how to work with them really differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we get to step three, we're now we're kind of starting to make things happen, right? We've, we've just, what did you call it? The cleanups, the cleaning up steps. Clearing stage. Yeah. Now we're in the, the, the making stage. (laughs) So number three is visioning. And so I was hoping that you could explain how visioning is different than visualization. Yes. So visualization to go back to these four levels, this conversation, visualization primarily lives uh, in the, I make things happen stage or what I call magical thinking. That's the vision board, right? Which really should be called visualization boards, but we decide what we want. And then we you know, maybe we make a vision board and put the pictures of everything we want. And then we do everything we can to manifest that, to become that, to create that. Visioning is completely different. It's to the best of our ability, letting go of any preconceived ideas about what my life needs to look like or feel like, spend time in the silence and listen very carefully to that inner wisdom. Now, I use Michael Beckwith's life visioning process. I give him plenty of credit in the book because it's so incredible. He's created these questions and this process. But the reason that I start with the making peace and the overcoming is even if I'm doing a visioning practice, if I haven't cleared away a lot of my past um, and my core false beliefs, they're going to show up in the visioning process. So we want to be an empty vessel. That's the idea. And then we want to listen carefully. And it goes against a lot of what we've been taught, Um, dominate, crush, you know, make it happen, smash that subscribe button. We even say things like that, right? It's like, this is much more gentle. It's allowing inner wisdom to reveal to us Mm. what we want to create, not what do we want to create? What's my thought about my life? And I can tell you this, if I would have only tried to create out of my mind, I would have limited myself dramatically. But visioning had something much bigger for me. And the great news is, in my experience, when we tap into vision, we also make a difference in the world. It's not, you know, we talked about that all about me stage. This is when we start to ask ourselves the question, what's my deeper purpose here? Mm. Why am I really here on planet Earth? Let me listen carefully to that inner wisdom. Yeah, this was really good for me to to read as well. Um I feel like with creating this and, um, the, the big vision isn't fully there or it's been, it's, you know, it's constantly changing, but, um, I think one thing for me is I'll get real frustrated that I don't have a clear end goal in sight. And there's almost like this feeling inside of me that I'm not going to get anywhere unless I have that. Right. Right. It's like, I'm not going to progress forward unless I have that clear vision of exactly what it is that I want or where I want to be. Um, but then realizing just allowing the space just for the universe, my higher power to, to lead me, to guide me and just see, it exactly. doesn't mean that I don't do anything. You know, I'm trying to stay focused on, you know, the present and what I'm doing right now and just see, let's just see what the hell happens. <laughs> yep, exactly. And that's, this is where we move into curiosity. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, that can be a really scary place to live. Yeah. I mean, I know, especially when I work with people in early recovery, one of the things I hear is I'm not comfortable with the not know, not knowing or the it's unknown lack of control. Yeah. And this is really inviting us to like move beyond the like dominate and crush and make it happen. And into like, let me listen to this inner wisdom. And it's a really different way of living. And for some of us, it can, for me, it was filled with a lot of anxiety in the beginning and the idea, like, you know, you hear people say like, well, what if I turn my will over to a higher power? What if, what if I, this higher power takes me in a totally different direction. So it's kind of the same idea, but we're looking at the inner wisdom. 
And yeah, I may have to like really question a lot of my points of view and I'm going to be asked to grow. And the the importance of this step is that we don't launch right into action. Uh, we move that we wait for step four to move into the action, but it's important to spend time really cultivating a relationship with this inner wisdom before we jump right into acting. And for some of us, that can be really scary in the beginning, but ultimately it's absolutely liberating. So I'd like to hear about your experience with this. Um, I want to have you back on one day. I just want to hear about all of your most profound spiritual experiences. Cause I feel like you must have so many, but can you talk about this? Like, I guess what was one of your most profound visioning experiences and how did you know when you were ready to step into step four, which is intention setting? Well, I'll share one that I write about in the book. Um, I, when I had a spiritual community that I was the director of, and I was the founder of, we dedicated ourselves to doing monthly visioning. And I kept, I kept getting a picture and an image of partnering with Michael Beckwith. I did not know him. I hadn't ever met him. I had barely even listened to his talks. I knew of him, of course, because he's this incredible figure. It just kept coming through. And I told my one friend who actually did know him, gosh, this has been coming through. And then I even had dreams. I had a dream one time. I've hardly ever told anyone this. So this will be great to tell. He pulled up in this red convertible in this dream. And he said, get in, I'm taking you for a, a ride. And I remember <laughs> just feeling so excited about it. And We're so, scared. yeah, well, no, I felt, it felt really, <laughs> that it was, it was, you know, obviously a representation of a journey much more than, you know, we could analyze the dream, which I love doing maybe. And have that you told him that other. story? No, I have not told him that story. I've told him the story about the visioning, but I don't think I've told him specifically about uh, the red, the red convertible, but um, I kept receiving that message. Uh, and I also know how it can be sometimes when we share those kind of messages, mm. right? Because mm. people would be like, oh, well, that's, you know, they might have a judgment about that. So I just sat with it. I told my friend Joan, sat with it. And here's something that's really fascinating. You know, Joan is, has been friends with him since 1986. So she knew him and they were on a phone call and he said, I've been getting this vision that I want your community, because she was part of my community, to be the first satellite of Agape. And so I was up in the Bay Area at the time, and we became Agape Bay Area. Now, this is really important because I wasn't in the frequency of, oh my gosh, this I need to make this happen. I just sat with it, like, oh, this seems really real for me. And we become that, which we're kind of jumping ahead, but really, let me hold that to be true. Let me not try to feel figure out how to make it happen, be in the question, continue to spend time in the silence. Yes, this is coming through consistently. It feels very real to me and then let it happen. And then, and then he called and that's, that's how it transpired. And then obviously we've been able to work together a lot over the last few years. So at what point in that, do you feel like it transitioned into intention setting? Well, in this particular case, it's a little tricky because, you know, he called us Yep. And said, yeah, I want to do this. And so then we activate the mind, right? Then we activate the practicality. And to tell you the truth, this is where most people start, right? New Year's resolutions, make a list of what we want to create. Um, and so once that vision was clear, and once he, he reached out to us, then we started looking at the quality of this, what wanted to be created. And then it became, it became really practical. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, obviously I talk about how this step originated and my friend Gregory who helped, you know, really it's his that I got permission to put it as part of the book um, because it's very practical and it's very, very tangible. And so we just went into those steps of like, what do we need to do each week? What's the next step? What, how do we move toward this vision? Mm -hmm. So how would you explain what intention setting is? Is that action steps? Yeah. So it's when I, when I first, um, when I first started working with this process, it was absolutely over a decade ago. I don't remember what year, but it was a long time ago. And I went to my friend Gregory, who is someone that is just extremely successful in many ways, not just, you know, 
externals, but also someone I have a great deal of respect for. And I asked him, how did you create that? And he said, I'm so glad you asked. I have this process I've been using for years and it's very practical. Now I've added the making peace, the overcoming and the spending time in the silence to it because it's important in the conscious creation process that we only create intentions based on what we receive in vision, not what we think we want to create. So that's an important first step. Then we look at, and for me, I do my intentions now for the year, but when I started it, I would do six months. What is my intention that is specific, measurable, realistic, but a stretch? And so I'll give you an example. When I went to my friend Gregory, I said, well, I want to be on Oprah. I've always felt it. It's been a very deep knowing. And this is true. And I don't tell people often because just like when I got the vision to partner with Marianne Williamson and Michael Beckwith, people like have an idea about it. But I do have this deep knowing at one point I'll meet Oprah and do something with her. I've always known that. And so I said, well, that's, that's my intention for this year. And so is it specific? Yes. Is it measurable? Yes. Is it realistic? Mm. Can I say it's realistic? Um, so what, what he invited is what would be maybe for the next six months or a year, a step toward that. And so I said, well, I'd write a book. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to write a book before you go to Oprah and say, Hey, let's do something. So that's where the idea of my first book came up. So I said, I listened in the silence and I, and I said, 18 months from now, I can, this, my first book will be published. So that's what I put on my intention list. And then it was specific, measurable, realistic, but a stretch. Mm -hmm. And then there are action. items. there's a whole process I, I use in the book and workbook, but there are action items. Um, you look at what your perceived um, uh, obstacles are, what the strategies are for those. And then the, the thing that has honestly changed my life is the, the weekly action steps. Mm. And I do it every Monday and to this day, and I think it's been 12 or 13 years, every Monday I email Gregory with how, what are my 10 action items for the week? And then that following Monday, I say, I did seven out of 10, the other three roll over, and then I create seven new. This has been life-changing because there's a discipline, or as Michael Beckwith says, a bliss-discipline about doing this because it's cre it's it's moving me toward my ultimate vision, whatever that ultimate vision is. Okay. So then are the 10 steps typically, are they all related to one particular goal? No. So, so for me, I usually have, and I'm, I'm kind of making this up, but let's say five or six intentions for the year. Okay. Um, those are specific, measurable, realistic, but a stretch. And then the action items each week need to point to at least one of them. And usually they're, you know, they're kind of interwoven. It's not like they're separate. So every action item needs to point to one of them. And then it becomes a really clear guidepost of what those weekly action items are. Yeah. You know, I could see one resistance to this being, well, that takes time, right? It takes time to come up with these intentions and to make these goals and stuff. And then that's taking me away from manifesting my, you know, dream life, but it really is how, I mean, I, I, that's definitely something that I've struggled with, right? It's like, oh, that takes yeah. time, but it's, but it's so crucial. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it reminds me of like, you know, we could use so many different analogies, but like, you know, obviously I've never uh, steered a ship, but like, you need to know what your coordinates are before you set sail. Right. I need to know where I'm going and not just like, oh, let's just, let's just start this engine and see what happens. And that was, that was true for me. I was like kind of bouncing around everywhere. Like, oh, I should do this. I should do that. You know, I have a little bit of the ADD thing going. So for me, it was, it, it's allowed me to have focus. And the other thing that's really important here is um, in the beginning, especially, but even today to a certain extent on Sunday evening, I'll be like, oh God, I didn't do those last four, but I can do them right now. Right. So it gave um, structure to, gosh, I know I should send this email to like, oh, let me just shoot this email out so I can check it off the list. Mm. So I found that like, you know, just with a slight, I'm going to use the ship analogy again, but with a slight shift, the trajectory of where we're headed over time starts to have a dramatic effect. Um, one important point to this is that we never go into shame or blame or guilt about what we didn't do. And it's important to have a, an accountability partner that celebrates that. Like I remember one time I did three out of 10 
And I was like, oh, I only did three. And Gregory was like, oh my gosh, congratulations, <laughs> three. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know I don't have you for that much longer. So number five, embodying the vision. What the hell is going on here? Okay, so embodying the vision is in some ways profoundly simple, but I'll, I'll, I'll have a little bit deeper conversation about it. Embodying the vision really is just becoming the frequency of that which, what, which you want to create. What do you want to create? Who do you want to be? You received these messages and visioning. You have given them the, these intentions. You've given, you're working on the action steps. And probably the most important action step of all is not really an action it's a being. Mm. Let me be the frequency of that. Uh, let me hold that. Um, you know, I was working with someone, I won't get into the details, but I was working with someone and we realized it's not really about right now. In this one case, it wasn't about what we're doing, but how we're being. Um, a really practical example, you know, many, many years ago when I opened my first business, I would imagine waking up, going to work, having my business, what did it feel like? What was the frequency of that? And then that does become magnetic. The deeper conversation here is that ultimately embodying our spiritual essence is really the deeper way to go, right? To know that I'm an infinite being and that there's a place within me that's not only unharmed and unharmable, but is capable of infinite possibilities. Being in that frequency and just noticing that what happens then, and then it doesn't become the law of attraction, but the law of radiance. I'm radiating this energy. I'm radiating this frequency. I do think sometimes, and I'll just name it, the law of attraction and the secret get a bad rap because of the way people frame it. Like, oh, I'm magic. That's why I call that magical thinking. I'm magic. I, I change my frequency and the world responds or reacts. That may be true. But the deeper approach is I'm only going to be able to step into the life I believe I deserve. Mm. I'll make different choices as I change my frequency. So it might be true that I attract something, but I think more than that, it's really, as I expand my consciousness, I can find myself attracted to different things. Mm. Um, what if it's all here and available, but I'm limiting myself based on my perspective or my point of view? Then I start to make different choices and then I start to have dramatically different outcomes in my life. Well, I am all pumped up now. Awesome. <laughs> I'm ready to go get shit done. Let's make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Okay. Workbook and course. So is the workbook out yet or when will that become available? Workbook is out. It's oh, available I'm getting on Amazon. Right now. I'm getting, yeah. Is it only in hard copy or is it a, a Kindle version as well? Uh, um, it's not a Kindle version, but, or, and, uh, what I'm launching right now. So probably by the time this airs, it'll be ready is my new, um, course platform where I have the conscious creation, conscious being and unharmable courses. And those include video reading from the book and writing assignments that are coming from the workbook. Nice. Uh, and so that's tjwoodwardcourses.com. And that will be live by the time this airs, I'm sure it'll be live. Yeah. And it says that I can order, it says if I order it today, the workbook, it'll be here by Friday. So that's pretty quick. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, yeah. Amazon. Thank you, Amazon. <laughs> Taking over the world. Um, well, this has been amazing. Um, I would ask where can people find you, but I'll put it in the show notes. We know where we can find you and thank you so much for your time. Um, and I know we'll be talking again. We sure will. We have so much to talk about and I so appreciate you. And I just want to honor you and acknowledge the courage that I've seen you exhibit from our first conversation of having this vision for this podcast and what you've been able to do and the amazing guests you've had. I just, I want to applaud that. And I think it's important oh. to acknowledge because it does take courage. It does take courage uh, to step outside of our comfort zone and trust that there's something here energetically and and I just appreciate watching you thrive in that way. Thanks. It's been, it's been amazing. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey 
And as always, I know that you did. Uh, thanks again for, to TJ. Please check out the show notes for links to his book and his social media. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. Check out the show notes for ways to contact me. I love hearing from you guys. Uh, next week, we are talking to the crappy childhood fairy. Go check her out on YouTube. So I'm going to be seeing you then. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super fucking excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.